When you think about the consequences, the unbelievable consequences of winding up on the street and the idea that that's done in 90 seconds, it's almost hard to believe. But that's the nature of what housing court currently looks like. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Justice Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. In most places across the country, you can lose your children, your home, your immigration status, all without the state giving you the right to a lawyer. In our last episode, we talked about the Supreme Court's Gideon decision. 60 years old this year, it enshrined the right to a lawyer for any poor person facing prison time. That right has proved far from a guarantee of effective representation, but when it comes to civil cases, even that right on paper usually doesn't exist. Today, we're going to look at how that absence plays out in one high-stakes forum, housing court. And we're going to hear about efforts across the country to guarantee lawyers for people facing eviction. This is the second in our three-part series on the anniversary of Gideon. And the decision, as we talked about in that last episode, was both sweeping and critically incomplete. For the civil side, there's pretty much zero chance of anything similar emerging from the current Supreme Court. But looking at how Gideon has played out, it's not even clear that would be desirable. The battle for civil representation is instead being fought by local tenants and organizers responding to local demands and facts on the ground. It's piecemeal, it's slow, but it's also working. Here's our documentary, Uncivil Justice. Because I, I could not afford an attorney for this long to do this. This is this this is a lot. This is a long process. And we're still going through it. We're not even we're not even halfway done yet. Chantal arrives for her meeting with her lawyer, lugging a tote bag stuffed with papers. That's far from the only weight she's carrying. Chantal and her mom were rent-stabilized tenants in the same Brooklyn apartment complex for almost 50 years. Two years ago, her mother died. From her hospital bed, her mother kept asking Chantal if her lease had been renewed. Their building had recently been bought by a large investment company. When Chantal reached out after her mother's death to say the lease would now need to to be in her name, the company responded with condolences and a 10-day notice. Vacate the apartment or we'll take you to court. So I received the notice and I am stunned. I'm like, okay. So I'm thinking in my head that I don't need counsel. So I didn't have a lawyer. And then I, I go to court. Someone who from legal aid is walking around. She's like, do you, do you have a lawyer? And I'm like, I don't think I need one. And she's like, well, what's your... Let me look at your paperwork here. And she looks at my paperwork and she's like, you need a lawyer. You cannot, there's there's no way you can do This sounds like a succession case. And I'm like, what is that? I had no idea. So she um, tells me, you know, fill this form out. We're going to get you a lawyer. And that's how Mimi Rosenberg walked into my life. <laughs> um, and I'm grateful that she's my lawyer. She cares about me a lot. Yeah. Um, Sitting beside Chantal, Mimi Rosenberg passes over some tissue. An attorney with legal aid, Rosenberg has been representing tenants like Chantal for almost 40 years. As one of her younger colleagues told me, Mimi knows everyone in Brooklyn. Rosenberg recently put in her papers to retire, then deciding there was still too much to do, she tried to take it back. 
I believe in a diverse city. I believe in inclusion and equality. And I think it is in a state of absolute threat. And I don't think I'm uh, entitled to rest yet. The threat to Chantal's rent-stabilized apartment comes from her building's new owners and from real estate listings describing where she grew up as Brooklyn's most sought-after neighborhood. Units that used to be rentals are being glossily renovated. A two-bedroom like Chantal's recently sold for just under a million dollars. Yeah, so you must feel right now like you have a nice place to live, Mm two-bedroom, at like a reasonable rent, Mm -hmm. and you're being told, nah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. This is, you you can't stay here, no. You don't live here. Like, to have somebody tell you that you don't live, like, I've been in, I've, I've lived in this area since 1975. It's called a succession case. The company that now owns Chantal's building argues she can't legally take over her mother's lease. This would mean the end of the unit's rent-protected status, freeing it for the full condo makeover. Succession cases are enormously complicated, and often that's felt like the point. Ordinary tenants, with no right to a lawyer, had little chance of fighting them. I'm glad I have a lawyer. (laughs) I'm definitely grateful for that because I would not be able to navigate the housing court system at all. Like, it's it's like speaking another language. Half the time I have no idea what Mimi is saying or doing or, you know, like she's she'll tell me she she's she's going to go meet with the opposing counsel and discuss this, this and this. And it, for her, it's like. English. For me, it's like, what did she just say to me? I have no idea. So Local um, organizing is a big reason why Chantal has Mimi as her lawyer and has her for the many months this case is going to take. Six years ago, after a grassroots campaign, New York City passed the first right-to-counsel law in the country for tenants facing eviction. It's underfunded and overburdened, critically, say the service providers, But Rosenberg says even so, it's prevented thousands of evictions. And so if you don't have an attorney, there is no way that you can flesh out the defenses, the affirmative defenses, the counterclaims that may enable you to prevail or at least to live to fight another day, witness the enormity of the numbers of people who are homeless and people who are homeless and on the street as well. Almost all of them, you can be assured, never had counsel and may have had really good cases that could have been presented, but there's no way a lay person can joust with a educated, trained lawyer from uh, the other uh, side. New York City's law has inspired similar efforts across the country, and we're going to hear more about some of those. But for now, let's focus on those educated, trained lawyers representing landlords and only landlords in most jurisdictions across the country. The day I visit Nakib Sadiq, a lunch hour string quartet is playing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah in a courtyard of Brooklyn's Metro Tech office park. Sadiq is the director of the housing unit at Legal Aid's Brooklyn neighborhood office. 
At the time we spoke, Legal Aid was in a dispute with its own landlord, and Sadiq and his colleagues were working out of a trendy WeWork-style space. It's an odd setting for public defenders. In fact, three decades ago, an entire low-income neighborhood was demolished to make way for the complex we're in. With her long memory, Rosenberg refuses to work out of the space. For Sadiq, prior to right to counsel being passed, it was clear who housing court was operating for. It was run by attorneys, a small number of attorneys. The landlord attorneys. The landlord attorneys, certainly, and who were, you know, naturally came to know the, the judges quite well, and vice versa. I'm not suggesting that there was anything necessarily inappropriate, but it was very much like it's what you might find in a small town. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Brooklyn guy, but I once in my previous life I got to observe court proceedings in like rural Pennsylvania. I sometimes reflect on how it felt a little like that. <laughs> you know, everybody sort of knew each other, except that you didn't, you could tell that everybody knew each other. They didn't know you. Certainly they didn't know your client. And there was a kind of feeling of outsiderness, even though every single day it's mostly poor people and um, working class people who are there. And uh, no the housing courts really are finding themselves unprepared to deal with the idea of having representation on both sides, that they actually have to hear both sides of the story. That, the eviction is not that last voice belongs to John Pollock, the coordinator of the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel. I asked him, tenants without lawyers are obviously in an unfair fight. Can judges intervene, at least to ensure some procedural fairness? The problem is they're not allowed to really go very far down that road because it comprises their neutrality as they, or at least that's how they've interpreted the rules. We do see some judges, you know, pushing as far as they can along those lines, as whereas the ethics rules allow. And then the opposite is you have cases, and me, I'm not talking about a few, but you have cases where the pleadings are obviously defective. The landlord has not filed something with the pleading that's required by law, and the judge does not, they do not act. They do not see that and then say, you know, landlord attorney, this is obviously defective. You need to refile it. It needs to start over. They don't do that. They wait for the tenant to, and the tenant does not know to do that. So it doesn't happen. So that that's obviously a very, there's no real gatekeeping. And just to give an anecdote from, I talked to one judge in a state where she told me that she was a new judge in housing court and she was advising tenants in court, she said, you know, that when they showed up unrepresented, she said, you know, it'd be good if you got a lawyer. And one of the senior judges pulled her aside and said, you're not allowed to say that. And that's how far the sort of problem goes with, with the way that their roles are interpreted. The combination of New York's example and local organizing and advocacy means the right to counsel movement is spreading. 17 U.S. cities, one county, and four entire states now have some version of a tenant right to counsel. So what happens when renters facing eviction get lawyers? John Pollock again. Tenants who are not represented lose almost automatically if they actually have the ability to appear in court and not be completely overwhelmed by the process that really does crush so many people into the ground. With counsel, what we're seeing from the right to counsel programs is nothing short of staggering. In New York City, 84% of the tenants are remaining in their homes. In Cleveland, 93% of the tenants are avoiding eviction or an involuntary move. In Kansas City, in the first three months of the program, the eviction rate dropped from like almost 100% to lower to around 20%. Everywhere that the right to counsel is being rolled out, it's proving what we already knew from decades of data looking at you know representation by legal aid. Organizers and tenants secured New Orleans' right to counsel law last year. New Orleans has a stark housing affordability crisis, made worse by all of the short-term Airbnb rentals taking housing off the market. 
Yassine Frank Southall is a housing organizer with Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative. Like Pollock, he says the effect of the right to counsel law has been dramatic. Every person we talk to, they're going to court, they're talking with a lawyer. It's very, very effective in keeping people housed. We see less cases of people calling us and going like, I was evicted, especially when people are legally within the right or their landlord has concocted some excuse to evict them that's totally bogus. People are fighting back. And we have more people contacting us about, hey, I had this situation happen to me and I want to stay in my house. I stopped my landlord once. What can I do to prevent this again? It's, it's a huge shift in how people are engaging with us. And it's wonderful and beautiful. People are fighting back. Let's stay with that thought for a moment. With organizing, there's a strategic long haul to it where a community is committed to each other to build power to win what they want to win within five, ten... Mason Andrew Kilpatrick, or MAC, was an organizer with KC Tenants when we spoke. KC Tenants is Kansas City's citywide tenant union. It helped to lead the successful fight for Kansas City's right to counsel law two years ago. As with other jurisdictions with these laws, outcomes for tenants in housing court have pretty much flipped. Where once eviction was the norm, now it's people staying in their homes. But for Mac, right to counsel is about more than just courtrooms. I asked Mac what led Casey Tenants to start its organizing around the law. We realized that this was necessary because we had realized within our union, we were losing a lot of leaders and a lot of neighbors, friends and family by eviction. We noticed a lot of folks were becoming homeless because of this. In Missouri, it's legal to basically discriminate against someone with an eviction for up to seven years. We had families and friends single mothers of multiple kids, basically being sentenced to homelessness for seven years and more. And the weight of that emotionally was getting too much. The other strategic part that we considered was that in the state of Missouri, when you face an eviction, chances are you're probably going to be evicted. And there weren't any protections and it's not easy to find a lawyer. And because tenants know that, there's a lot of fear in organizing and fighting back against landlords. Because they knew how easy and how cheap it is to file an eviction in the state. They knew how easy it is to lose and be evicted. It was really hurting our ability to organize and build new members and leaders and unions within the city. You know, when I'm out on the field having one-on-ones and folks, having one-on-ones with folks and asking tenants if they're interested in organizing against their landlord, the one thing that was always stopping them was, I can't afford a lawyer and if they evict me, I lose my home. And I'm not going to lose my home. This is everything to me. So I'm not going to participate. So when we combined that strategic element and then this deeply emotional element to it, we knew that this was like a call that made a lot of sense. And we've noticed that change since passing tenants right to counsel. Several more tenants unions have been popping up. A lot more tenants are... My home is everything to me. Housing advocates will tell you that's true in more ways than one. Eviction triggers the loss of more than just a roof over your head. And the weight of those losses is not being equally felt. Here's Mac again. And with tenants' right to counsel, we knew from our research that it was older Black women that were the most impacted by evictions. Many folks in our base are older Black women. And we knew that this couldn't be a process where advocates, academics, or lawyers who are usually mostly wealthier and white, should take the lead and charge on this. this For John Pollock with the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel, 
right-to-counsel laws need to benefit most the people who've suffered most from their absence. This is where Pollock says the role of organizers has been so essential. They take a broad view of how power operates. One of the primary motivators for us and many others is looking at who it is that's facing these proceedings, and it's people of color everywhere. That, for us, is extremely important to, to recognize that the justice system is letting them down and letting them get crushed under the wheel, under the, you know, the boot of the, essentially the housing courts. And the way that race affects the way right to counsel works also can't be ignored. We have to make sure not just that we get the money, not just that we hire a bunch of attorneys, but that the delivery of the right to counsel furthers race equity too. It has to be done in a way that reaches people, that actually reaches all communities, especially ones that may have been more disempowered, less likely to engage than others because of how long they've been crushed by the system. There's like a through line all the way from who are you bringing into the movement? Are, they, are you activating voices? Are you giving people power to speak? And then are you implementing the right to counsel that in a way that they continue to have a voice and that they are reached essentially and empowered in the way that right to counsel is delivered? Organizers will tell you that you know right to counsel can do, if it's not done right, it can disempower tenants. And that would be a disaster. You know, like we we can't have a system intended to change things that actually is in partly furthering the sort of race and equitable, you know, nature of our of our justice system. Disempowering tenants, particularly tenants of color. For too long, that has seemed to be the primary effect of many housing courts. Here's Nakib Sadiq again, the director of Brooklyn Legal Aid's housing unit. You know, the experience of being a poor person in housing court, let's face it, is a poor person's court. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a poor woman's court, right? And I, I, you know, I, I got to work in federal court once in Manhattan. That was a rich man's court. And I would like the same deal for our clients, you know, in, in poor women's court here in Brooklyn that, you know, it, it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel, the, there isn't the same level of dignity, the, the same level of information or honesty even, or, you know, process and decorum. It's shabbier. It's noticeably shabbier. You can feel it. You can feel it. And I think right to counsel, well, I, I do think that is one of the jobs of the right to counsel attorneys and the organizations to, to be like, no, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to be professional about this. <laughs> we're, we're not going to just shout and, you know, you just tell me to go do this and I have to come in and do whatever you're saying and you don't have to explain anything to me or what my other options are. That's not right. You know, that's just not right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that for my mother or my, anybody I cared about. Neither would you judge. Neither would you landlord's lawyer. So why, why, why this woman? Why, why should she get something lesser? And here's the thing. Giving people that something lesser, the shabbier process that reliably leads to evictions, well, studies show it actually ends up costing cities more money than right to counsel would, a lot more. John Pollock explains. Evictions are very expensive for communities. If tenants are homeless, they need shelters. There's going to be, if you have, you know, like unsheltered homelessness, you're going to have people who are arrested incarcerated, prosecuted, all of that is very expensive. A homeless shelter over the course of the year is very expensive. There are mental health costs associated with eviction. There are education costs for homeless children. There are unemployment costs. There's foster care costs for, for children that are no longer in a stable home and need to be in foster care. Those costs dwarf, easily dwarf the cost of a right to counsel. Yet many right to counsel programs say they're underfunded, sometimes critically so. That means there are still tenants going without representation or without the kind of representation that can do more than play defense. Attorneys for tenants prevent evictions. 
That's being proven in housing courts every day. But the threat to poor communities is bigger than any individual case. Discriminatory zoning laws, landlords with unfair practices across multiple buildings. A well-funded defense system could take on those cases as well. But instead, Brooklyn Legal Aid's Mimi Rosenberg says, like their colleagues on the criminal side, housing attorneys are mostly just trying to keep up. It's almost the equivalent of accepting a plea bargain. Here in the housing arena, it would be, gee, I really should go to trial on this case, and I really should try to get a major abatement and consequential damages and actual damages. Whoops, don't have the time, have too many clients, so I will just settle for making sure that the person was not evicted, but I will not necessarily hold the landlord's feet to the fire if that is what should have been done. So right to counsel needs to be extended so that poor communities can actually tackle affirmatively and bring suit against many of the things that are uh, driving them out of their their neighborhoods. If the goal is preventing evictions and everything that comes with them, the good news is that right to counsel is working. And it's spreading local victory to local victory. John Pollock. The thing that's so amazing to me is like, it started in New York, yes, in San Francisco and Newark. But, you know, I talk to people now in Oklahoma and Kansas and New Mexico and Mississippi. I mean, there's interest everywhere now. Like everyone is seeing this as something that they can, they can win this. They see, yes, this is winnable. This is a winnable thing and it's effective. And that's why I think there's so much excitement about it right now. And I just want to say something else. Um, I'm not Mimi's only client. For Chantal, trying to stay in the building where she grew up with her mom, right to counsel has meant a shot, a shot at what she considers to be justice. And it's meant Mimi, her defender. So the fact that she remembers my case without looking at her notes, I don't know what her caseload is. It has to be heavy. And the fact that she takes the time to explain and and review and connect. Not every lawyer would do that. So. Well, you know that she, did you know she was supposed to retire last week? And, no, she's and she, not. She can't retire. She has one more. She has one more case. She can retire after me. Okay. Mimi did retire shortly after this was recorded, but not from Chantal's case or any others she was defending. Chantal's case goes to trial next month. Mimi Rosenberg, her now volunteer tenant counsel, will be standing right beside her. That was our documentary, Uncivil Justice. It's the second in our series on the 60th anniversary of the Supreme Court's Gideon decision. Scroll back in your feed for our first episode, and before this year is out, keep your eyes open for our final episode on the failures of Gideon and the rise of mass probation. For more information on what you heard today, click the link in your show notes or go to innovatingjustice.org slash newthinking. Our thanks to Arnold Ventures for their continuing support of our Gideon at 60 project. Today's episode was edited and produced by me, Julian Adler is New Thinking's executive producer. Samia Amin Mia is our director of design. 
and Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Justice Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>